Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. We've entered the year of the rabbit, the new Chinese year, and as such, it's appropriate to devote this episode to China. China is frequently in the news. In fact, sometimes it seems as if it's always in the news, from COVID to Taiwan, and from world trade to its position on the war in Ukraine, China is always a central issue. Yet in truth, it remains an enigma, or simply unknown, to many people. To help crack the enigma, we have with us two real experts on China, both well-traveled in the country, both Chinese or Mandarin speakers, both experts on various aspects of the history and policy interests of China. Dr. Marika Olberg, Senior Fellow in the Asia Program at the Berlin Office of the German Marshall Fund. Prior to that, she was with the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies. We also welcome Dr. Maybridge Stumbaum, Team Leader on Asia-Pacific Security at the Bundeswehr University in Munich and Professional Fellow at the Free University in Berlin. Amongst her eminent previous positions, she was also Team Leader of the European Union's internal think tank, APRAN, Asia-Pacific Research and Advice Network, and co-finder of WISE Deutschland, of which she was also president between 2003 and 2008. Glad to be here. Welcome, ladies, and it's really a pleasure to have you here. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, I started out um, on on the German Council of Foreign Relations doing security policy, and I had a very lovely um, older lady coming up to me and saying, like, I have a good idea and a lot of work for you. And that was uh, how we started um, the WISE chapter in Germany. So 10 uh, very audacious women uh, trying to make a difference. I was by far the chicken of all of them. But as it goes with chicken, they have most of the time. So I was the founding president because I was the one able to put most of the time in there, which delayed my PhD by several years. But it really was a very pleasant experience because it was good to see other women fighting in that area and to see about the, the difficulties and also to have someone to give you a hack from time to time. And uh, the challenge for me really was that I was very interested in security policy, which was dominated by views on the transatlantic, European security and China. And those things did not go back together back then. And I was in my free camp for about 20 years where I tried to combine academia and think tank. I worked in a lot of universities, a lot of think tanks, a lot abroad, um, because I always thought you understand people better, how they make decisions when you live in their country and see how they do day-to-day life. And this is me then finally when I ended up now in the reservist with the German Air Force to work on security policy on the practitioner side. And I'm academic at the Bundeswehr University, and I'm also an advisor uh, to the EU. So I try to mingle it all together. And I'm always happy to talk with other women because... We still have too many panels where none of us is present, although we all exist. So, so well put and well done on being one of the founding members in Berlin. I was one of the founding members in Brussels. And WISE is ruling the world as far as we're concerned. Absolutely. Marike, can you tell us how you started your career? Uh, Of course, happy to. Um, So I basically ended up where I am now working um, working in the China space initially because I wanted to be able to speak Chinese. Um, 
in high school, I had this idea that, oh, it's, it's you know, because Chinese as a language gets mystified a lot. And a lot of people say, well, it's, it's almost impossible to learn. And I felt that was a challenge. And I, I, I started doing some very elementary language lessons. And I was like, oh, it's actually doable. It's, it's not going to be easy, but it's definitely possible. So initially, I started out simply because I wanted to to speak Chinese um, and started at the university in Heidelberg to the two intensive years of language classes. And the second year I I spent in Beijing, that was in 2004, 2005. Um, so now almost 20 years ago. Um, and back, back then I was really, really sad that I had missed the 1980s and 1990s in Beijing because China had changed so fast. Um, and I felt like I'd kind of missed history. And now looking back on it, of course, I realized that 2004, 2005 now has become history. But while, while I was staying in Beijing for the first time, I kind of became interested in, in the greater policy issues. Uh, there was a lot that happened um, in that time. There were massive protests against Japan. Um, the anti-secession law was passed, which is basically about, you know, what the PRC can do if Taiwan takes certain steps towards independence. So that's how I got interested in, 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 in issues regarding China beyond just the language. Um, and initially, I was thinking I might stick with an academic career. I wrote a PhD thesis essentially about how the PRC markets itself to foreigners, how it sells you know, its own narratives, how it tries to win foreigners over to its point of view. Um, and I did two years as a postdoc after that. But one of the things um, that I, I noticed, or at least for myself, was I want to be more engaged in current policy debates. And in academia, some of that's getting better and there is more relevant discussions, um, but somehow in academia that was still not possible. So that is how I ended up in the think tank field. I first worked for a couple of years at Merck's, the Mercator Institute for China Studies, that is based in Berlin uh, as, a, as an analyst and then during the pandemic, I switched to my current job at the German Marshall Fund, still based in Berlin, but here and now I still work on China issues, um, how China China is relevant for the world, and I now do so with a with a stronger transatlantic focus. So kind of trying to bring bring both sides of the Atlantic together on, on China policy issues. Um, and yeah, that's how I that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And do the two of you work together? I mean, not in the same institutions, but do you often exchange opinions and ideas? Absolutely. I try to chair Marike as often as I can because <laughs> I, I really learn so much from her every single time on the panel um, because Marike is one of the very first uh, who took a good approach to finding out about Chinese influence campaigns, interference campaigns, the whole disinformation. She wrote a whole book about it that you should talk a little bit because she was really a pioneer in this. And that was really something that brought China to our decision makers agenda because China suddenly happened in Europe and no longer far away, you know, behind Russia. Why is China always in the news? As I mentioned in our opening, you are the two women who I thought could really explain why China or as you call it quite correctly, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is just every day you switch on the news or read the paper or read whatever it is that people read, and it's it's omnipresent. Why is it so omnipresent? 
I mean, I can, I can maybe get started on that. I would actually turn this, I, I mean, if I wanted to, I could turn this question around and say, perhaps China is not on the news quite enough. Um, we now have a situation where, yes, we do read more about what's happening in China than we did just a few years ago. But given the global relevance of the country, um, perhaps we're still not hearing enough about China and a lot of things are happening in China or that, you know, concern PRC interests on a global scale that doesn't make our news. And, and I think we actually still have some room to go to, to mainstream some of that China coverage and to, you know, to, to cover China the same way that we would cover European countries, for example, or that we would cover the United States. I think arguably those are still in the news much more. Um, but I, I think one, one of the reasons why we now do hear more about China is that um, perhaps the, the global pandemic really drove the point home that what happens in China is not irrelevant for us, but what happens in China is going to affect us one way or the other sooner or later because we live in a global interconnected world where, you know, if if there is a, a beginning of a pandemic in China, that is not going to stay there, but it's going to come here. So perhaps it is worth paying a little more attention to what is what is happening there. So I do think that has changed some of the mentality with which we approach China. Um, but there's still, I, I would say there is still some room to go to actually cover China a bit more. Uh, I can only agree on this. And I think, as Marika said, the pandemic definitely made people aware um, that what happens, like, you know, in Germany, we have the saying, like, if a bag of rice falls over in China, no one cares. Now suddenly you realize it actually has a lot of ramifications back home. And I think this was joined by a lot of Chinese investments in our companies, particularly in, in the wake of the financial crisis, when a lot of Chinese money was invested in Germany and those small, medium-sized companies that we have, the kind of like hidden champions. And then after a while, they were turned into Chinese companies, you know, and so we do lose suddenly not only jobs, but also expertise. And I think that suddenly came back to people in their everyday life. So they realized, you know, in their jobs, this became one of the issues. Then, of course, in terms of like the markets, more and more people traveled regularly to China um, for business. So that became a bit more of a new normal. Then the pandemic happened and suddenly this helplessness uh, towards the whole whole case. And then I think the last bit was really the Russian aggression against Ukraine, you know, and then all the talk for China to help and China just not siding with the West. And I think for a lot of the, particularly people more concerned about politics, but also other people, they were so aware of this war, particularly in Germany, Germany there's really the, the fear that it comes to us, you know, like it in the first weeks, it was people here helping To, to support the refugees that say, like, you know, if they stop fighting, you know, they're going to come to us and they're going to come to Germany. And then suddenly there's this other big power, which apparently should have some kind of influence to do something and just does nothing. And that, I think, also gave a, uh, additional impetus uh, to think about is like, why don't they do something? And like, what is this all about? And and also, I think it was a lot of disillusionment that um Uh, went through European capitals to change the minds of those who like saw China still in overly positive pictures and thought that the the, the Americans were just trying to 
to to to give a bad atmosphere that maybe there might be something about this. And, and the final thing was really this kind of um, pressure on individual companies, individual undertakings within our countries. There was this one case by Carlson, uh, the publishing house, who wanted to bring out a children's books on the origin of um, COVID, basically to help kids to understand what is going on, but also about hygienic um, measures. And they were pressured by the Chinese, the CCP government, to um, eliminate the already published books and to take them from the market. And those those kind of things triggered some thinking. As my Reike said, still not enough, you know, and in terms of the huge impact um, that this all has on like our day-to-day life, it's still not enough, but much more critical thinking now than before. The CCP is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. I've heard you both speak on this subject and you were both excellent. Do we actually understand China or are we trying to understand China in our Western terms and therefore missing something very big? I think it's really, maybe I get started, I think it really depends to whom you talk. Um, One of the major issues um, and the major misunderstandings is that we try to understand Chinese actions by taking for granted that they act like we do, that they make decisions like we do, that they have the same kind of priorities like we do. And if you look at the differences between Europeans and Americans, you know, we don't think alike on a lot of issues. We approach things quite differently. So why do we assume that the Chinese are like going across along these lines? And uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, is the governing party in China. It's a one-party state with authoritarian features. So they make decisions And that is something that we in our pluralistic democracies have difficulties to understand. In Europe, we have difficulties to understand that a party would risk economic gains for political gains, that they would really like, you know, sacrifice human life for political gains, because in our democracies, we function in a very different way. And I think that actually leads to misinterpreting what's happening in Beijing and also to misreading um, their policies. If I, if I may add to that, I, I fully agree. Um, and there's an additional problem, and that is, um, aside from that, um, the Chinese party state often tries to portray itself as some kind of fundamentally different Chinese mystical other that functions according to a completely different logic, which then, of course, you know, yes, they do function differently from how democracies function, but that's not because there are some mysterious Eastern culture and, you know, Confucius quotes, etc., etc. It's because they are an authoritarian system that that works according to certain to certain rules and certain standards. Um, and, And one thing that I often try to explain to people, for instance, people who pick up who pick up talking points from Beijing about, you know, China's 5,000 years of history or China playing the thinking in centuries instead of, you know, our quarters is that, well, that's actually a bit of a self-mystifying. And, you know, that that is something that the party wants you to believe because it is also tied to some of their talking points that, oh, for instance, Chinese culture is fundamentally unsuited for democracy. Chinese people are not capable of democracy. That is something that you will often hear the party say, you know, because we have a different culture, we choose a different 
political system. Now, of course, um, you will perhaps notice that there are several places in the world that are culturally quite Chinese. Um, the, the first one I would point towards is Hong Kong. Or Taiwan. <laughs> Hong Kong doesn't have a democracy, but there were certainly lots of people that were interested in it. And then the second place, as Maybrit just said, is Taiwan, um, where, you know, yes, it's not completely culturally Chinese. Taiwan has its own history, but it is strongly culturally Chinese. And there is a very good democracy going on in Taiwan. So I, I think the, the problem is, on the one hand, that we do not understand the political processes as well as we would like. And then the additional problem on top of that is that we tend to fall for the self-orientalizing myths that are being pushed out by the Chinese Communist Party for very self-serving reasons and that are, of course, attractive to people. You know, if I am somebody who has never worked on or with China, but I go to Shanghai for two weeks, um, which, you know, will soon be possible again, I assume. I stay, I stay there for two weeks and this is all I hear. And then somebody back home asks me, what do you know about China? Yes, those people are going to repeat that, but it's a very, very superficial um, understanding of China that is based on the self-orientalization, self-mysticization of um, the, 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 the Chinese government and the CCP. And I think it's important that the, China, the Communist Party has improved itself tremendously over the last 20 years in how to speak to the West. When we think about in 2003, I guess, it was, there was this case, case about Mattel, you know, the, the Barbie doll uh, manufacturer, and they had color that contained lead. It was a huge scandal because, like, all the headlines were like, you know, in China, it's just unsafe to make toys for kids, da-di-da-di-da. And then they found out that it was actually a mistake by Mattel itself. So in, in the good Chinese tradition, they put uh, the vice uh, president on live TV in front of a tribunal where he then apologized to the Chinese people for the harm he caused. And they thought this is a, a, a solid way, you know, to cl clarify this and, uh, and, 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 and to get on good grounds again. And, and it completely backfired because like Westerners who saw that, just thought like, wow, what is this kind of regime? This is really awkward. This is really horrible. So they realized, okay, these kind of tools that we practice, you know, in, in the, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, might not go well outside. So they took really professional help when 2008, uh, um, the Olympics came about, 2010, um, the, the expo in Shanghai. One of the help, for example, was Publicis, this big French-based uh, PR um, um, company that then advised them on how to speak better to the West. So they invested a lot of resources in understanding how we tick. What are the things that we relate to? And you could see this over the last years, the messaging that they have brought out, how this really tries to, on the one side, feed this kind of like cultural minority complex that is among a lot of the Westerners. So they 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 repeat those narratives about 5,000 years of history and all of this, you know, because it sounds so well, but also how they point out deficiencies uh, in, like in the Western democracies, Western governance systems, da-di-da-di-da, in a way that resonate with our discussions. They've learned a lot from the Russians on how to do that, particularly in the last couple of years. But I think that's important to know that we also have... Um, an actor at the other side that understands us now much better than 20 years ago. The Wolf War diplomacy probably is a sign that they did not understand everything very well, but th because this really backfired. So Wolf War diplomacy was like high-level diplomats going out and uh, on Twitter 
So on a platform that is banned in China to really go out against um, Western governments, Western researchers in a very brutal way. But apart from that, um, before that, and I think now again, it really was the understanding how we they understand the West to basically make the West make decisions in a way that they want them to do. Does China dislike the West? Is it a revanchist um, power or state like Russia? You know, in the same way as Russia feels as though the end of the Cold War was an absolute disaster and that the West nearly tricked it into it. China is somewhat the same, isn't it? Going back to the opium wars in the 19th century, in a sense of um, we have to now prove ourselves and do something to prove that we are back in one way or another. Is that a good way of understanding them or is that a mistake? I mean, I think when you there's definitely in the way that the party has talked about history since it came to power, this theme of, you know, we are now standing up to the foreigners and we are taking back what is ours, that has definitely been very present. And to to a large degree, that is a sentiment that has been manufactured and stoked on purpose because it makes a lot of sense to want to unify the population to say, you know, those are the people that have been trying to keep us down. Those are the people that colonized us in the past um, that draw some parallels to the current times because that is also something the party does. It's the West simply wants to keep China small. And the only reason why any actions are taken are because Western countries, specifically the United States, but also U.S. allies, simply want to keep us small. They don't want to see a strong China, etc. So this is definitely a narrative about, you know, oppression by foreign powers that has been nurtured on purpose by the party. And that, yes, does inform some of the thinking. Beyond that, though, if you go to the um, to the decision makers, um, to the CCP, again, to the Chinese government, um, yes, they do view the West and quotation marks collectively, um, which specifically usually refers to the United States and its allies around it, but mainly the United States, as the one big competitor that they need to that they need to win against or that they need to um, become stronger than this this other power. Um, so it's 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 part of it is about history and those historical narratives are certainly nurtured, but it's also about what is currently going on in the present. Um, and the positive narrative here, of course, is, you know, China's rise and China is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, but as I like to often stress, there's also in many ways, I think the CCP feels threatened um, by by the West. And that is also part of the motivator that it wants to strengthen itself on a global scale and therefore needs to weaken Western countries um, on a and on a relative basis, because it wants to it wants to feel safer. Um, the the background here is of course you know where the CCP came from after the end of the Cold War. Essentially, you have 1989. The Chinese government decides to crack down on its own student or its overall democracy movement. It was you know more than just students participating in that. They did that. Then in other parts of the world, such as Germany. Um, people chose not to do that. There were, of course, discussions in Germany to adopt the Chinese solution to crushing protests here as well. That was rejected. That was not done. And then, of course, they saw 
the Berlin Wall fall. They saw the Soviet Union disintegrate, etc. Um, and they read all those um, texts about engagement, engaging China culturally, economically, and then you know the the, the whole narrative about well, if we do that sooner or later, they're going to democratize as well. And that, of course, is a huge threat to the governing party that wants to stay in power. Um, so they really studied um, the fall of the Soviet Union in great detail. They looked at some of the smaller countries around that. I think Romania is the case that is always given as the most horrific. This is like, this, if you want to scare your cadres, you tell them about Romania or later you tell them about, you know, Saddam Hussein and about Libya, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is, if you don't pay attention, you might end up dead. Um, so they, they they read that and they, of course, took countermeasures. And in the initial years, those were very domestically focused. You know, you make sure that hostile ideas can't come in. You make sure that your own population uh, has been subjected to some patriotic education, becomes more supportive of you. And then in the second step, the idea was to, it's really not enough if only our own people think that. To become secure, we really need to be stronger on a global scale. We need to basically take the battle outside our own borders. We can't just wait for hostile ideas and hostile thoughts and hostile culture to come into our own country. We need to compete at a global level. We need to establish ourselves as a normative power that basically defines some of the concepts, some of the values, the key narratives that shape thinking, not just in China, but on a global scale. And this is one area definitely where China views the West as a major opponent. So basically you're saying that in order to, if I understand correctly, protect the, the Chinese Communist Party and its interests, it is heading for world domination so that it will decide how everybody behaves as long as it's according to what the Chinese Communist Party wants? I think I think what the CCP wants, um, if one can talk about the collective will of an entity such as that, um, is at once a world that, yes, where other countries, other groups of people naturally align themselves with the interests of the CCP, where there is less pushback, where they don't have to deal with, you know, countries opposing some of China's global policies, where they don't have to face resistance when they, for instance, want to construct a project related to China's Belt and Road. We can talk more about that later. They don't want to have local opposition in a different country. So they want to have a world where essentially there's very little pushback, both from other governments and from the populations in those countries to Chinese interests, where everybody kind of naturally falls in line and those few people or few countries that don't get isolated and are kind of pointed out as, oh, they're just doing that for whatever nefarious reason, but really everybody else thinks that what China is doing is great and is in our interest as well. So they just want to have a world where it's a lot easier for them to operate and to establish their interests, not just within China, but on a global level. I think the important thing is really that they do not go for an empire. Right. World domination always sounds like, you know, we have an empire and of course we had enough empires over our world. And we also had like the idea about Pax Americana, you know, this kind of like that you have a world policeman, all this. And this is not the idea. The idea is really what Marike also said about, 
you want to you come from a state of mind as a besieged nation, besieged party. You know, really, uh, it's in the in the DNA, the victimization, the hundred years of humiliation that are always like used as a mantra. Like you know, we were humiliating, now we've become strong enough, so no one can do that with with us. And you know, everywhere, and uh, when you look in Europe, you have. Um, enough examples of like a country like Germany that felt threatened from the outset what we did. You know, we caused two world wars by trying to feel more secure, right? And then the third option basically was then European integration in terms of like feeling safer. And that is, Germany has nine borders. China has 14 borders, you know. We are the two countries with the most borders around the world. And that gives you a certain kind of insecurity. When you now have a governing party in the middle that went from like almost being decimated with a long march to then like uh, struggle its way up. You know, it's built in the DNA of the party. And so what they want is basically to be safe, you know, to be safe in what they do uh, with as least resources as possible. And as, as Marek said, the best way for that is like that others join you in, in principle, you know, in, probably in ideology, but at least like in the conviction so that they won't go against you. They won't put out sanctions, but they will basically say, oh yeah, that is correct what you do. So you have just least less resistant in 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 that bit you need to use uh, you need to use less resources to keep that while you can move forward uh, doing what you want to do and i think that's a fundamental difference to any kind of empires or world domination theories and anything else um that we had before it's also different to when Medvedev speaks about we need to bring territory back into the russian sphere right there's not apart from taiwan there's no idea about you know, enlarging the, the PRC's territory to, to such an extent. It's really more the kind of forming the international system in a way that they, they being the CCP, can act without constraints so that they are in total control of their own affairs of China matters within China and outside of China. So is the U.S. right to um, depict China as the big enemy? or the biggest security concern, I think it's defined um, by uh, this administration and the one before it. I I would say it's certainly the biggest, I mean, say the biggest challenge is always difficult because everybody, you know, I would, would say there are plenty of other challenges. You can define that as climate change. You can probably find, depending on how you define the biggest challenge, find six, seven, eight other competitors um, but it's I think what you can definitely say is that for for the United States and also for Europe, China definitely poses a massive challenge. Um, it definitely poses a challenge to you know how 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 the international order has been has been run. It poses a challenge to how companies over here have done business for a long time. They go to China and they're like, oh, Somehow this functions according to different rules here. Can we somehow make China stick to our own rules? Then they find out, oh, maybe not. They keep trying to push, but they can't. So it is definitely a huge challenge in terms of how the global order has functioned in the past couple of decades um, and, 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 and um, the PRC wanting to revise some of the rules to fit its own needs better. Um, it is certainly also a huge challenge in terms of regional security in the Indo-Pacific. You have a situation where you have a de facto independent state, that is Taiwan, which has 
never been part of the PRC. I think that's important to stress. Taiwan has at no point in history ever been part of the People's Republic of China. Um, it is not recognized by many states because the PRC puts pressure on countries not to accept Taiwan um, on, on a diplomatic level. But de facto, it functions as an independent state. However, it is claimed by the PRC. Um, and the PRC leaders have said by, I mean, by 2049 at the latest, we will have, you know, reunified um, all of China again. And that, of course, means we, Taiwan in some way or another will be part of the PRC again. And that, of course, is pretty fundamentally at odds with what people in Taiwan want. Um, people in Taiwan lived under a dictatorship for a really long, for, for, for several decades of their own history. They fought for their own democracy. Um, they got, they finally got it. Um, uh, in the 80s and 90s, they had a democratic transition that was hard fought for. And um, most people in Taiwan have no interest in becoming part of a country that is um, ruled by, by a single communist party. Um, and that's fundamentally at odds with one another. And if there is a military confrontation in the region that would have huge global implications beyond just the Indo-Pacific that would impact us in many, many different ways. So that, of course, is a massive challenge that we need to come to terms with. Maybe just to add on to this, what people sometimes in Europe don't really understand, when they, because sometimes you still hear this, but less and less, like, you know, if something happens to Taiwan, let the US deal with it, right? But it's not only that you have two nuclear superpowers that will be facing each other. It's also that you have seven out of the big, of the 10 biggest uh, ports of the world in the, in the Pearl Delta in, in, in southern China, where a lot of uh, all the goods and commodities come to Europe. So basically, if that traffic going through a Taiwan Strait stops, um, we won't have assembly lines running in Germany or other European countries. So it will just be a huge economic crisis for the world in like no time. One important thing that I would also like to point out to what Mareke just said, because so often we hear this is about the US-China strategic rivalry. And, and I would detest that because I don't think it's about the US and China. I think it's about two different systems on how to govern the world. Because our Western system, that about liberal democracies, has shaped, of course, the international order after 1945 with the Bretton Woods institutions and the ways how the UN works, very much the world in a way the how we like the world to operate. And of course, we have benefited tremendously from that because it resembles how we govern our countries and how we would like uh, to, to run the world on, on a global level. Um, so we can say that the system has a tendency to reach out to the rest of the world to become like they are. And of course, the whole idea about human intervention um, um, all of those kind of like reforming, engaging programs of the last 30 years um, definitely are a testimony to this. The Chinese system, uh, the system of the CCP is equally reaching out. It's equally a system that is based on like you have a power in the middle, uh, China, you have Tianxia, everyone else is a tributary system around it that then feeds into this benign hegemon in the middle and the idea here is that this also reaches out. So we only have one globe. If we have two systems, both of them reaching out, there will be clashes and there are clashes. And I think the important thing here is to know that it's not a rivalry between two superpowers. It really is a very uneasy dynamic between two systems that are 
not able to coexist peacefully. So what we are heading for in the moment is a very dynamic way of trying to manage that constant differences and potential clashes so that they will not escalate into a major war. But the challenge really is that the systems are not compatible because both of them have an approach that they want to shape the world as they are. That's so fascinating. And part of me, not part of me, the whole of me feels that we've only just got started in this conversation. Nonetheless, we have to start moving towards its end. What we haven't talked about is money. Um, China has benefited massively from the same global economic system that um, is part of the Bretton Woods institutions and is part of the American century and the American leadership. Does it recognize that? Does it wish to keep that? Or does it also wish to um, move away from it? So um, China goes in a very um, incremental approach. They want to benefit from it as long as possible, but they want to change it where it doesn't work any longer in a way than the CCP needs it to work. And we've seen this under Xi Jinping when he basically set up a full portfolio of alternative institutions to those institutions that are there. So for almost any international organization, you now have an alternative that is under Chinese leadership. Some of them have flourished. Uh, if we think about the BRICS Bank or um, the AIBs, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, some of them have less flourished as um, a lot of the security-focused fora. But it is a process where they basically say, we try to reform the system in a way that it reflects Chinese preferences and that we can have our say. But if we don't manage to do that, we try to build up an alternative to this. And so basically, in the beginning, offering you can choose both. You know, you don't have to be selective, but in the long run, it will be an either or question. So maybe maybe to add to that. So in, in terms of recognition, Chinese leaders saying, oh, we benefited from that order, um, probably not going to be part of the public talking points. Um, behind the scenes, you're probably going to, that pe people are plenty aware of it, that China has also benefited from it, but it would not be part of the talking points in the press conference that um, China owes uh, anything to any other country and owes anything to anybody except the CCP, which of course is the one that led China, China to greatness, right? Um, but in terms of the economic system, what, 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 what you see now is um, the PRC increasingly trying to, um, while keeping other countries dependent on China to a degree, to make itself more and more independent of the economies of other countries. It's, this has been summed up under the, the slogan dual circulation that, that Xi Jinping put out. But the idea is we want to make sure that if and when such a big breakup does occur, we are in a better position to be independently, to be able to sustain ourselves. Um, so the PRC has been working hard to make itself less dependent on, for instance, certain foreign technologies. It's not able to produce itself um, and has tried to become more independent in many, many other ways. So basically, it, it's some kind of decoupling without letting the other side also become independent of you. Um, and that is, of course, something that we need to take into consideration. We, we talk a lot about, you know, the West decoupling from China or decoupling as the big scary talk that we're going to, you know, split the world in half. But, we, but, but what we need to recognize is that there are, of course, also certain ambitions on the other side to become more ambitious uh, in that regard. And that has only been strengthened, of course, by 
what has happened in the past couple of years. I mean, first you had what happened under the Trump administration that did speed things up. And now, of course, 2022, you had um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions following that, which, again, I think has has sped up the process in Beijing, the ambition to become you know, to be, to win, if and when this happens, we can basically sustain ourselves and we cannot be crippled by sanctions the way that, for instance, Russia has. Um, so that, that is definitely an important line of thinking in, in Beijing that we need to recognize um, and that we need to understand. Really fascinating. Um, we haven't had time to talk about the opening after COVID, the sudden reversal of opinion has happened there. We haven't had time to talk about a lot of things, but I do want to ask one question. One so rarely sees Chinese women at a senior position. I know every so often you see spokeswomen, but what is the position of women, um, especially in government and especially in politics in China? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. There are other people who can talk a lot more about that. Um, I would urge people to read the work of Lida Hong Fincher, who has written a lot about women in China, um, who has done a lot of research on that and has published excellent books on that. Um, but in, in, in a large part, I think what we have seen in recent years when it comes to the status of women, which was never never great in the first place is we've actually seen some regression. Um, we are beginning to see even fewer women in top positions. If you look at, you know, the Politburo um, standing committee, you will see none. Politburo, you have a very similar situation. Um, you have also a situation where women come under increasing pressure because of the demographic challenges that China is currently facing. Of course, you had for the longest time the one China policy, the one child, not the one China policy, the one child, yet for the longest time the one child policy, where of course women were, you know, forced to only have one child and where there were forced abortions. And we've seen a reversal of that because in Beijing the government has realized that it's, it's facing a huge demographic challenge. Um, so now there's actually, they want to encourage women to have more children. In many ways, they might want to encourage women to stay home. Uh, I think that's been, that's been a fear and a justified fear of many women in China for the longest time that maybe one day they, we will be sent home back into the kitchen and maybe there will be policies. And I don't think that's a crazy idea. There will be policies that will strongly constrain us and our choices and will basically not force us to have three or four or five children, but that will, you know, make it very, very, that will try to very strongly incentivize us to have that, um, even if it's against our will. So um, in many ways, under Xi Jinping, the position of women has really regressed. Um, uh, there have been movements, um, feminist movements that are being crushed, um, people that are being taken in, simply because they are or either being taken in by authorities or being harassed online for um, supporting certain feminist positions. So there's really been a backlash in the PRC against, against feminist movements, against you know, women, women standing up for themselves. Um, and that is really, it's been really sad and kind of harrowing to see and to watch. 
And I think it's important to to look at this because so often people quoted the West Mao Zedong who said like women belong women owe fifty percent of the heaven, right? And then like as an as an idea, like he he empowered all of them, but the role of women, as Marika said, is 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 not good and is decreasing. So you still haven't really found so many leadership positions. If you look at the Standing Politburo um, Committee, if you look at, even at the National Party Congress, and I think the one-child policy definitely also fueled that. I, I had this experience. I had a really nice uh, Chinese language instructor in Beijing, and then she once told me the story that when she was 12 years old, her parents, um, her mother got pregnant again, and she was expecting a boy. And so they just gave her away. So, you know, they just basically expelled their 12-year-old daughter um, from their family, you know, and it was just normal that you would do that so that they could actually have a male heir um, to the family. And uh, you've seen those stories about grandmothers feeding needles um, to to their granddaughters so that the parents would get another shot on getting a getting a boy. Um, on the other side, as Marika said, you know, the other disproportion, you have far too many men compared to those women. So that led to human trafficking being coming a problem in China um, and, and a lot of other issues that come with the pressure that young men feel if they won't be able to find um, a wife. I was once talking to a to a young taxi driver in Beijing because the other taxi driver said, like, here, here, go with the young women, go with the young woman. So you you have a chance to talk to a woman. And he was like very shy and blushing and he drove me around. And then he said to me, and I said, like, so are you getting married? He was like, no, as a taxi driver, I don't earn enough money to buy a flat to be able to marry. So there's no future for me with a woman. And that, of course, is also adding a lot of pressure um, to to the whole story. Well, then, of course, on the other side, last story, and this I remember, I was giving a lecture at, at, at Peking University and had this really bright bright student, female student, you know, answering to the question, everything. I thought, like, wow. And then um, it was the end of the session and you heard the ringing and she gets up and becomes all this girlish, you know, and like you see all these girlish because that's also what came in with the country becoming rich, that the, there were a lot of women that had the, suddenly to be very beautiful and very girlish and very because it fits into this kind of idea of we are rich and then this is what rich uh, like the wives of rich men look like. So there's a lot of these different pressures coming together. Plus, of course, under Xi Jinping, that it's just like fewer and fewer females that you see, at least at public display, that is not really uh, moving in a in an empowerment direction. It doesn't sound like there's going to be a women in an international security Beijing or Peking branch in uh, the very near future. Well, you, you're not allowed, right, to become an organization. So there are no NGOs. There are only Congos, right, government-owned NGOs. So I don't think Wise has a chance there. I don't think it does, which is greatly unfortunate. Well, ladies, that's been fantastic. And that's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Maybridge Stummer and um, Mareike Olberg. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Vaitel. 
with Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. Bye.